The Heather McCoy Show. Welcome back to the Heather McCoy Show, and um, so we're going to be talking a little bit about the budget sequestration or sequestration that's about to happen. Um, yeah, so this thing was negotiated to get us off the fiscal cliff, so we've been saved from the fiscal cliff. Thank God that was the close one, and now we've got budget sequence. Uh, well, yeah, it's been a long morning sequestration, and so basically, um, well, I mean, what's the difference? I mean, we're both going to have budget cuts, and we're both going to. I mean, if you if you were around UCI, you know the budget can't be cut for anything more, and I know that's the case with the federal government, even though. That the Pentagon will be cut up to 50%, which, uh, again, it's like one of those things where I believe it when I see it. It's like that's the rhetoric and that's what's on paper, but I'm sure there's got to be ways they're going to funnel money there anyways. And uh, there's got to be some back doors, so it's not cut 50%. But, yeah, so now uh, people that have been on, on unemployment insurance and, you know, I mean, just everything, you know, forcing almost a government shutdown again, I mean— and the thing is, is like the people that, you know, I saw um, the the economist Paul Krugman, he wrote a column saying that, you know, we're we're suffering from careerism where this, you know, if people made careers, I was saying, oh, what we need is bipartisanship. That will solve everything. And then when you have a, bi, you know, a, a centrist president and then you have an extremely insane Congress uh, led by John Boehner, who um, basically wants to. You know, he's leading the Republican Party into what I call the cop strategy, which is basically, um, you know, being without money and having no shirt and running away from the, the you know, the debtors and um, that we owe money to. And um, that's not a good strategy. And, uh, the, of course, you know, they, they know they can play this game because, you know, the mainstream media will just say, oh, it's both sides. They can't come together. Oh, they're being irrational. When it's just one side that is, uh, you can you can make the case they're not even elected in Congress as far as the House of Representatives because the districts have been so gerrymandered that um, a majority of voters actually voted Democrat in the um, House elections, but you know they're ger- gerrymandered enough that um, well we still have Republican leadership. So um, yeah, they're not even representing uh, overall constituency. They're just representing, you know, very carved out niches of districts and, and, um, and those niches, you know, get them a majority and those niches somehow, I don't know if they carve them out by, you know, um, I know cable companies probably can see everything you're watching because it's digital now, digital cable, but are they just like making districts out of income level and then the, you know, percentage of houses that turn on Fox news every night, because it certainly seems that way. Um, yeah, and so the the other thing too about districts and and um, redistricting is is uh, I had a friend that ran against Dana Rohrbacher for I forget which district I'm gonna say the 46th, but I'm not sure off the top of my head. He um, and if you and you go oh 46th district in in your head when you think of the map you go oh that should include parts of Westminster and Long Beach and um, Huntington Beach and you know I mean that area isn't what it is on TV. It's not, I mean, the beach area is very expensive and exclusive, but there's some really slummy areas in that area. And you would think that you can, you know, uh, if you just go by income level, you would think that, um, you, you know, for who votes which way, if you just go by income level, you would think, oh, you know, th- that's a swing district. But no, the way it's carved out is Dana has most of 
uh, Huntington Beach, and then he has parts of uh, Pacific Pals or not Pacific Palisades, Rolling Hills Estate in that area, and then he has the wealthier parts of Long Beach, and then the district isn't even one cohesive unit. Um, and I think, and again, I'm I'm gonna might have to look this up on the break, but I think he represents Catalina as well, so he has an island that he represents, and so um, besides besides islands where they have to be represented by somebody. Um, I think they're, for redistricting, you definitely need to have uh, something that says that you can't have little, like, ink blots of a district that has to be one cohesive unit. And then that, at least that way, when you draw lines, you can't be, you have to have so many people in your district, but at the same time, you can't just, you know, skip over people. Um, at least Tom Campbell's district in Orange County, I think his is um, more what's the word it's more one object or one shape it, it may suck because the newport people cancel out the santa Ana people and that's usually how he gets elected but um it, i think this is a the large part of it is just the redistricting effort and the effort by you know millionaires and billionaires to say oh we don't need social security medicare or anything like that we're, we're rugged individualists you know we can make it on our own and so you know when robert and i talk about um you know, uh, Wildemar and how like the dirt is polluted and the water is polluted in areas of Wildemar. And when we talk about that, which we will have an update in about 15 minutes on that, um, that's why I always refer to it as a libertarian paradise known as Wildemar, is because that's what happens when you have no rules. And um, you have, I mean, it sounds again, I, you know, thinking Dagmar Klaus, but yeah, it's, it's very, you have to have some rules. Like when you, build a house is it a pain in the ass to go through all of the building inspectors and make sure everything's okay yes but when you sell that property you're not just selling the property that the house sits on but you're giving him the guarantee that this meets standards you know if you just had no standards whatsoever you can do what people did in the 20s which i believe i'm sure this isn't just a movie plot but they just basically took movie set houses put them on the lot and sold them as a real house which you know, that's not a feasible house. It really isn't. And so um, I think that's I think that's a large part of the sequester problem is just redistricting and the house doesn't have to answer to anybody because they can get outvoted in the overall vote and uh, we still have a Republican majority. And um, so, yeah. And then I think the other thing that really makes this, uh, the budget issue an issue when most people don't think it is an issue is is these fake crises that Washington likes to make in their little tiny bubble. And um, the only way regular people get the glimpse into how senile and, you know, just dumb the um, bubble is is when we get to watch Meet the Press. It's just like his frame of reference for every question is very Washington bubble-ish. And um, it reminds me of... Um, in, you know, in the old days, listening to Air America Radio and, and hearing Al Franken and, and somebody from Congress would talk, and it would always be a Democrat. And then um, the Democrat would always say, well, this is during the Bush years. He would always say, well, we're going to wait six months for a report to come back, and then we're going to decide what's the best way to proceed in Iraq. And then in another six months, another member of, a Democratic member of Congress will, you know, just pass the buck and say, well, we're going to wait six months and see what the best way to, you know, to proceed in Iraq is. And then they just keep writing reports, you know, well, the whole, you know, the whole thing is just melting down. 
And, um, you know, I'm just, you know, if San Onofre ever has an accident, I'm waiting to see how many reports flow out of there before somebody does something. Um, actually, a side note, uh, since I did bring that up, uh, there's a great article in the OC Weekly about that. Uh, not so much melting down, but the unsafeness in that uh, power plant. And uh, I was meaning to contact the writer this week, but I didn't get to it. I've had a really busy week. So that is a must read. It's on the OCWeekly.com and uh, pick it up at any place where it dispenses one of those things. But, but back to the budget issues, the thing, no. Um, the, um, again, another Washington crisis that, you know, is fake is the you know the post office they're you know talking about i don't know if it's a for sure thing by now but um the last time i heard it was almost for sure that they were going to cut saturday service and um you know that's about that's a form of austerity too because you know the payroll of all those post people working on saturdays will be slashed so you're monday through friday and um not to mention it's going to wreak havoc on people who depend on stuff in, you know, in rural communities that depend on their Amazon or depend on their Netflix or, you know, if they don't have a high-speed internet connection, that's their lifeline is the post office. And especially if they're in a rural area and, you know, rural areas don't necessarily get serviced by FedEx sometimes. And, um, and so it's just another way of just screwing people. And it's just, it's a wonder, it's, you know, it's, it's going to be interesting when, if people finally do wake up that, you know, just not, whatever you do, I mean, yeah, Democrat's not great, but whatever you do, just don't vote for Republican. That would be, a, that would be a great day, actually, if people vote third party and just avoid the Republicans like a plague, because they really are a plague at this point. Um, and yes, the Democratic Party sucks, you know, big ones, but, you know, at least they're semi-responsible even though they are very corporate dominated so anyways um we're gonna move on to some other news this morning uh well i don't know if i did mention it last week and i don't know if you saw it or not but um nascar debuted the generation six car and the daytona 500 um overall impressions of the race was it's a new car so i'm gonna give them a lot of leniency on it but um running one line on the top of the track that was not fun. I did not have a good time. Um, some parts of the race were more exciting than others, but for the most part, for a Daytona 500, that that was a snoozer. Um, I'm not sure why people were so afraid to try the low side, or maybe they just kind of gave up because they were testing there for quite a while. So they tried it a few times, and then you know, after a while, when you stick your toe in the water so long you know it's the water's cold and you don't need to try it again i'm not sure if something like that was at play but it was very boring to watch the cars go in a line for most of the race um dale jr did make it exciting with uh mark martin and they kind of swerved down at the end and um moved annika patrick and greg biffle to seventh and eighth respectively but at least it created some excitement and um so yeah hopefully they'll get the aero package fixed a bit uh, and um and then they'll be able to run two lines. And actually, Dale Jr. blamed it, the new asphalt, saying that once the asphalt wears in a little bit more, you'll go back to two lines. But we're going to see how the, that theory tries out in Talladega because I think their asphalt's a little bit older than the Daytona asphalt, and hopefully they'll be able to run two abreast there. And uh, so, it, yeah, Danica did good. I mean, um, it was impressive. Her her, her pet pit crew put her at quite a disadvantage throughout most of the day and she was always able to rally back and be in 
two or you know the top two or three cars and um that's not always easy to do at a place like Talladega or Daytona I'm sorry and uh so she had a pretty impressive day um some of the smaller teams like Reagan Smith and uh, Michael McDowell uh they finished in the top 10 so um that's that's a good thing um if you don't follow NASCAR there's there, there's a thing in, in the economics it's a term called an economy to scale and at this point most of the big teams have been around since uh for Rick Hendrick it's 84 uh Jack Roush is 86 and Joe, Joe Gibbs is 92 I believe or 91 and so um over the years there's an economy of scale where you start accumulating assets and you start accumulating know-how and manpower and just overall capital and you you can just you know you just have more uh, clout as a company over smaller ones and uh, through consolidation and some other stuff um, the the line between rich and poor in NASCAR very much reflects the line in society where you know you have the very wealthy that dominate almost everything and then you have the few stragglers that once in a while can succeed and make it into the top 10 so as you know um, latte sipping as it sounds to say, well, I'm just glad to have a top 10, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, it is quite an achievement considering the odds that they face in the sport. And, um, that's one of the things that NASCAR really has to figure out. And it's, it's not an easy egg to unravel because you have to say, you know, Hendrick, you can't, you know, have sub teams like, uh, Stuart Haas or, and then Roush now has, uh, Penske is kind of a, a sub team. Um, and and Richard Petty Motorsports as a sub team, and you've got to figure out a way to make them individual teams again, but still have the competitive balance. And um, because like Formula One kind of does it, where their engine manufacturers are definitely they have you know the Ferrari motor does come from the Ferrari factory, and the Ferrari team is still the factory team. But there's other uh, there's other um, teams running Ferrari motors, but they're just not sharing technical information. So something like that might be have to be done because um, it's just getting to the point of just ridiculousness for somebody to start new into the sport and then try to succeed. And then you just have all these, you know, collaborations in a sport that should be more individualistic and should, you know, I used to have a gunfighters mentality where it was just you by yourself. And running a multi-car team at one point was seen as being a distraction from taking away from your primary efforts. And uh, the awkward moment of that particular race was uh, 50 Cent trying to kiss Aaron Andrews on the cheek. And Aaron Andrews artfully dodged it. And, uh, yeah, I don't know why he thought that would be a good idea. You know, it's just like, here, why don't I try to kiss a a pit road reporter right on national TV, blah, blah, blah. So... Yeah, some I don't know what the thought processes are sometimes with people, but whatever. And so, um, yeah, I guess the last thing I'm going to leave off with before we go to Robert Larson from the other side of Cleveland National Forest is the Oscar ceremony, which is extremely flat, extremely boring. They tried to get Seth MacFarlane to do something edgy, and it was a snoozer. Um, even though the, the Abe Lincoln joke was funny, and I don't know what the outrage was about it, but um, yeah. So anyways, um, you know, if they really want to do edgy and offensive, 
you might want to try for Gilbert Gottfried. Uh, he's not really new or, you know, he's, he's not a new name around, but the guy can just come up with the most offensive things possible, but they're all very, very funny, unlike Seth MacFarlane. I've never really, I've been one of those people that one or two episodes of The Family Guy haven't made me laugh but, and um, American Dad, but I don't get how he has like nine TV shows. That that doesn't make sense to me. Much like the the Bachelor and the Bachelorette, that was that was pretty horrendous too. I just saw that for my first time last night, and I'm like, wow, dumb people procreating. That's amazing. So, anyways, uh, we're gonna be back with Robert Larson from the other side of the Cleveland National Forest. This is the Heather McCoy Show.